This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly, England's first win in Italy for 60 years, Italy's first defeat at home in qualifiers for almost a quarter of a century and Harry Kane's England's highest scorer of all time. Mind you, could have scored that pen against France, not that we need to dwell on it. A very professional first half, less so in the second. Luke Shaw sent off as Italy piled on the pressure, but England don't often beat good teams, so it's a great start for Gareth Southgate. Also today, Bayern Munich sacked Nagelsmann and bring in Tuchel. Not sure many people saw that coming. There's Ben Foster's return and the glory years of Soccer AM to get nostalgic about your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, John Bruin, welcome. Hello, Max. Hello, Barry Glendening. Hello, Max Russian. And hello, Nicky Bandini. Hi, Max. And thank you all for doing this late at night. It's nine o'clock in the morning. It's a lovely time to do a podcast for once. <laughs> um, <laughs> what do you make of that? We're going to win the Euros, John. Uh, yeah, nailed on. Nailed on. Let's get let's get the party started right now. Get the Croydon Box Park. Get it all fired up. This is happening. Get the fireworks ready to put wherever you want. Uh, this is England, and we're going to do it. Let's get very excited because they played exactly like we see England, which is played well in the first half, and then the second half, uh, utter chaos. And they got away with it this time. Uh, but a red letter. The, the headlines will all be about Harry Kane, deservedly so. England's record goal scorer. It was a very decent first half performance. Uh, I'm not sure Italy played as well as they would have liked to. But in the second half, as so often, as so often as I've chatted to you over the years, a team that's better at passing the ball created great big problems for England. This isn't the only thing this week, actually, where uh, opinions won't have changed of, uh, over a big event. No one's no one's opinion is going to change after this game, is it, really? I suppose, Barry, we should spend some time talking about Harry Kane um, because only one person can have scored the most goals for the England men's football team, and it is him. And a lot of people play football so I don't know. I don't know if when records are set when you're alive or sort of when you're a bit older, they they seem to be less important. They seem to, you know, when I was growing up, England's record goal scorer was like something I'd look at on a piece of just go, oh my god, that person must have been ex- incredible because I've seen Harry Kane play a lot. It changes it, but that is an extraordinary achievement for any one single English footballer. Is is it? <laughs> oh come on! Oh, come on! Come on! <laughs> Come on, Barry. <laughs> he's got 54 goals for England. That's considerably fewer than Robbie Keane has got for Ireland, who are much worse than England. 68. Uh, 18 of those goals were penalties. We all know the penalty he missed. Well done, Harry. It's it's uh, He has scored a lot of goals. Wayne Rooney scored 53 goals, seven of which were penalties. That's uh, 11 fewer penalties than Harry Kane got, scored. Harry Kane scored more penalties for England than Gary Lineker, Wayne Rooney, Michael Owen, Jimmy Greaves and uh, Alan Shearer combined. I'd fancy my chances taking a penalty for England, although I would deliberately sky it over the bar. Maybe I'm not the person to ask this question, Max. <laughs> well, I think you're being deliberately obtuse. I was hoping for some objective viewpoints. Uh, I, I a, think a, that was very objective. Um, uh, uh, Nicky for I, balance. I, I, I don't know. I'm talking I'm... down his achievement. Almost half the goals he scored were penalties. It's not that great, is it? Well, a third of them. Nicky, can I have some sense from a member of the panel? Uh, this isn't fair because you come to Italian next, and what I want to talk about is Harry Kane crawling from behind <laughs> the know, goal. That was great, like, wasn't it? Not just like just from like a, a little bit behind the goal, but crawling what I felt like <laughs> ten meters behind the goal, further and further until he was back on the pitch to to, to time waste, which has always been a part of his game. That sort of uh, we could call it dark arts or shithousery. Um, but no, he's a brilliant striker. Lots of teams um, in international football would love to have a strike like that. Italy were delighted to have a striker who could score one goal tonight, actually, because I think uh, Immobile and Bellotti between them haven't scored a goal um, playing at centre-forward for Italy since 2021. So um, yeah, just having any centre-forward who can score a goal looks pretty good from this side of the fence. And, and Harry Kane is a, a, a very good scorer of goals and actually um, wasn't just about the goals in this game, was it? He was contributing to, to the build-up play here, the 
um, the ball across the edge of the, uh, edge of the six yard box that could have made it three nil before um, half time. I thought he's he had another good game. He's an excellent striker. I don't know what else you want me to say about him. <laughs> No, no, that's fine. Simon says, I mean, that, that you're right, that bit where he heroically crawled back on the pitch, like a sort of soul, like a dying, a wounded soldier trying to get back to, to you know, <laughs> out of enemy lines. Simon says, why do so many people seem to dislike Harry Kane, England's greatest player for many years, all-round lovely bloke? What's the guy got to do, John? Yeah, there, there is something about him that leaves certain people cold, isn't there? Is, is it not that uh, he often exhibits the selfishness of the striker? when he's playing and there is this idea that he has played in certain games that he shouldn't play in because even when he's injured and of course there was that funny old business a few years ago where he scored a goal against Stoke I think it was that he didn't score and then he kicked up a fuss about it but actually tonight uh, a part of him that I don't think I'd, I'd seen before which is um, England scored the first goal through Declan Rice and uh, the cameras and the sound picked him up captaining the scene you could hear him saying focus focus to the players now it's very rare you get to hear that type of stuff uh, particularly in football he's not someone you would outwardly think is much of a leader Harry Kane because he's quite a reserved character though he always speaks to journalists after the games so he's maybe a bit more uh, outward facing than you might think that was interesting and then I was flicking through because I remember this game I was actually at the game where Wayne Rooney Past uh, became the record England goal scorers, surpassing Bobby Charlton. And uh, I, I dug out the clip in which he said, and this was only uh, seven or eight years ago, uh, Harry Kane, you know, you're, you're, he was actually in the dressing room. You'll pass me one day, maybe. And it, that seems to have come around very quickly. Harry Kane in 80 matches, hell of a scoring rate. I accept Barry's criticisms or uh, uh, pedantry, can we call it that, about the penalties. Uh, but um, I think you'll find uh, in, in most top-class goalscorers, uh, penalties are a big part of it. There was that always that argument, wasn't there, that Andy Cole would point to Alan Shearer and say, you scored, you know, 260 goals, but I never took a penalty. So, you know, uh, but anyway, listen, uh, Harry Kane, all credit to him. Yeah, and actually uh, what I saw from tonight was that of a leader because there were certain points during that game when England needed someone to calm it down. I'm not actually sure he was that successful in doing that, was he really? Because they'd lost the cool a little bit. So, Max, you're you're accusing me of being deliberately contrarian. I suppose I am a bit, but <laughs> yes. What, why don't you, as a uh, Harry Kane fanboy, why tell me why you think it's a wonderful achievement? It's not that many goals. I wouldn't call myself a Harry Kane fan, but I think he's a tremendous footballer and I think he's sort of deceptively good at lots of parts of the game. He's he's more skillful than people give him credit for. I think he's more creative than people give him credit for and he's like an intelligent footballer. I was just saying, if you think about the number of young boys growing up who want to play football, who want to play football for England, who ultimately when you're, you know, when you're young, you want to score goals, right? Everybody wants to be a centre forward at the start and then you sort of find your place. To be the person that has scored the most number of goals for that country, it cannot not be a great achievement, I don't think. But his his record of scoring goals in big games is piss poor. Semi-finals, finals. Yeah. No, I don't disagree with that. That is the one, you know, that's the next thing to do. But it is still good to have scored more goals for England men's team than any other human being. I, I would I will stand my ground on that. What did you make of it from an Italy point of view, Nikki? I was, I mean, the first half was just dismal. Um, it is, it's exactly the opposite of what you've just been saying, you know, dismal first half, good second half. Roberto Mancini was making this point before the game about the lack of resources and options available to him. And I, and I have a lot of sympathy for him or anyone else doing the Italy job now because it's true, right? What are you saying? There's a, only about a third of the minutes played in Serie A are by Italian players. Um, only about a quarter of the goals scored in Serie A are by Italian players. Even when you look at the, the the three Italian teams through to the Champions League quarterfinals, there's not that many Italian players playing for them. So his his talent pool is diminished. But the first half I was just watching and thinking, and, and in that context of a diminished talent pool, you've just cut your nose off to spite your face because you've got this thing going on where you're pissed off, frankly, with, with Lazio because there's been a few series of stories of Lazio players either leaving Italy training uh, camps early um, during the summer when Zaccagni left one early or there's Chile Mobile Mobile being sort of stopped from going to join up with um, 
with the Italy squad when Lazio said he was injured and the player, you know, Immobile literally went to the airport and then Lazio stopped him from travelling. Um, there's been all these sort of stories and now he just feels like he's just sort of shutting out a whole group of players. Mattia Zaccagna, I wrote about for The Guardian on on Monday, is having a, a sensational season on the left of attack for for, for Lazio. It's a great story of Maurizio Sarri's Lazio. Lazio is this um, left winger who's um, come from Verona. Well, he was a number 10 before, now he plays left wing and he's scoring goals. And you're looking around and saying, telling us you've got no one who can score goals. Why aren't you calling this guy in? Because you're annoyed with him for something happened in the summer. Lazio have kept 16 clean sheets in Serie A this season. They have two Italian centre-backs, Romagnoli and Casale. Um, Casale wasn't even in the squad. Romagnoli's on the bench. Meanwhile, you're starting two centre-backs, Acerbi and Toloi, who both play in, in a back three normally and you're playing them in a back four and they weren't great. So I do think there was, for a lot of Italians watching, certainly for me, a sense of, look, nobody nobody in Italy expected Italy to be as good as England right now. and um, the, the, the talent isn't there. But we've seen this team be more than the sum of its parts. And right now it, it felt, in that first half at least, it felt like much less than the sum of its parts. In the second half, things did improve quite a lot. What about Rotegui? I mean, is it Argentina cast off? Like John said, is it like the Italian Cascarino? Is it someone who's not good enough to play for Argentina who Italy have scooped up? Or is it a different situation? Well, I mean, obviously Argentina have a lot of talent up front. So is it is it that he's 23 years old? I don't think you can make it as simple as that because at 23 years old, you've got lots of time to, to to claim your opportunity. And it seems like he's one of those players who's really come into his own in the last year in particular. I was reading since 2020, he's got 10 goals against the big five of, of Argentinian football and, you know, Boca, River Plate. God, I can't remember all of them now because I don't follow Argentinian football. He's been scoring against those teams as well. So he's scoring against the big clubs and, and no one else has been scoring at that rate. I haven't seen him play 90 minutes, honestly, before this game. So what I can say about him is I thought that he looks like a good sort of old-fashioned number nine who can be a bit of a battering ram, who can who can be physical and who took his goal very well. I thought he's, he played a good game. But I don't have this sort of, I think this idea that because someone is coming in from, through their grandparents, somehow that's... Um, not as meaningful. I mean, in Italy, that's been put aside ages ago. Mauro Camaronesi played for the national team that won the World Cup in 2006. Like, this is not new to have someone who's who's brought in in this way. And I, I don't have any problem with it, frankly. <laughs> Would Cascarino get a game for Italy now? I mean, in his heyday, probably not now. <laughs> but, but, no, but say, say a, a sort of late 80s Millwall standard Cass... Given the choice of Ireland or Italy, he probably could have got in this Italy team, wouldn't he? You know, it, it is. It's interesting because you know when I talk about the the lack of talent, I mean, I think in the second half, what you saw is there is still some talent in that midfield. I thought Verratti had a really good game, but the issue is really at centre forward. I think the defence can be good. I think the midfield is good. Um, I think even the wide forwards can be good when you've got everyone healthy, when you've got Chiesa, when you bloody call up Zakani, when you've got. Um, Raspadori as well who could even play through the middle eventually um, but centre forward is the shortage position so yes he probably would get a look because anyone who can play centre forward will get a look There is that great Jack Charlton story isn't there of uh, you know getting to uh, the, the stadium in New York uh, when Italy were playing Ireland and you know they were fully expecting like 50% Italy and 50% Ireland in the because you know obviously there's so many Italians and Irish in, in New York but the Irish had absolutely flooded the stadium it was just green and Jack Charlton walks in and then walks back into the dressing room and just says to Cass you're the only Italian in here mate and I it's just <laughs> line, isn't it um, what did you make of the ref in that game Barry because he kept booking England players and the bias in me started going he's not booked any Italian players it's clearly an outrage but I don't know if England were time wasting as, as badly as he thought or perhaps their yellow card tackles were totally justified and got every decision right it's interesting you say that to me I haven't heard any post-match punditry and just going on what I saw I thought England were time wasting a lot in the second half, and if if it had been the dirty foreigners who were doing that, there'd be uproar. I don't think Luke Shaw can have any complaints. He he was booked for time wasting, then booked less than a minute later for just a bad foul. He he clumsily got on the wrong side of his man and and tripped him, and that was fair enough. So I. I'm not going to say I was neutral, but I I didn't think the ref had a bad game. Uh, yeah, Jim says, did Luke Shaw see Fulham's rapid implosion at the weekend and think, I'll have me a bit of that? Um, I think that's probably very fair, Barry. I mean, I thought the penalty, John, 
I, that's, I mean, actually, I said that's never a penalty because I now hate handball penalties. And a lot of people on social media said I was a moron because that was, <laughs> even though they agreed with me about the handball law, that is a penalty. And now I've lost all sense of perspective. But it still seemed very harsh to me. Yeah, it's the realms of natural, unnatural. Who knows what is natural and unnatural in this world these days? Interesting, a friend of mine, uh, obviously, uh, was not watching the game, but uh, was watching on one of these um, you know, live score things. And he seemed to suggest, as did the Channel 4 commentators, that Kyle Walker had been booked twice, but he didn't go off. What was going on there? Yes. Well, I, well, I couldn't work out who got booked in the moment where Declan Rice kicked Harry Maguire in the head and Italy got a free kick. And that was the moment where it seemed like Kyle Walker, for some reason, had got booked. But I didn't understand it. Obviously, Declan Rice didn't get booked because he'd have been sent off. And then I think Harry Maguire was booked a bit later. He was, wasn't he? Because Harry Maguire was booked in the build-up to the goal. So I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Nobody knows who was booked. I mean, it, 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 it could have been that Declan Rice got booked twice, as did Kyle Walker, as did, as Barry said, deservedly Luke Shaw. But even the Luke Shaw one, the England players seem to be suggesting that Luke Shaw shouldn't have been sent off because Harry Maguire was down on the floor. It, it got a bit ragged that game, didn't it? It did get ragged, yeah. And I suppose I suppose what you have to take from it is that England beat a good team, right? And they don't do that very often. And in the context of qualification, Nicky, you know, these are the... these. I mean, the, you know, they should both qualify, right? But this is a really crucial moment, actually, even though it feels so early in the t- campaign that you just think they'll both go through. Yeah, I think that the way it's structured, you, you expect they probably will both go through. Um, but it still makes your life easier if you win this game at the start and get and get the points on the board, doesn't it? And for Italy's sort of point, uh, side of it, when you've just missed qualifying for a World Cup, you don't want to start with a loss, obviously. When you talk about beating a good team, <laughs> there's definitely a part of me that looks at the resources Italy have and the resources England have and think, well, the story here shouldn't be that Italy have lost one to England. It should be that Italy didn't lose any of the previous six to England. I think England have got more resources and, and should expect to win more than one out of seven within the context of the group. Definitely, it's 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 yeah, it's mundane to say it, but of course you'd rather start with a win. Steve says, "How wrong is the Italian shirt by Adidas? Too much white with the stripes. It looks like Greece on TV. They're playing like Greece as well." He tweeted in the first half. Simon says it was enjoying it was enjoyable seeing. AC Jimbo doing a little blast from the past Football Italia bit on the Channel 4 coverage tonight, wasn't it? What other things could we get him back to do to remind us of better days? Thanks, Simon. They did, a, speaking of Channel 4, it's a good win for them because they've had a wretched record, John, haven't they, under uh, oh, yeah. England. A great win for Channel 4. They did a live watch-along with Bioac and Fenwa, Specs and Morph. Sadly, not the Morph that I... Th- yeah, no, I was going to say, uh, I, I was... I mean, <laughs> I mean, I would have loved that. I would absolutely <laughs> just bringing back a little orange plasticine man to sit next to Bioac and Fenwa. That's the commentary team I would pick. And your commentary team are uh, and Bioac and Fenwa and Morph. Um, yeah, yeah. So Tony Hart's come back as well to do this one as well. But yeah, I can't say uh, I, I, I went for the watch along. Uh, I'm perhaps in the wrong age group uh, for that. Though producer Joel tells us he had a look in. Um, and said it was a lot of people chatting and watching football, which is what actually... That is what what a watch-along is. Yes, yes. and that's what we do quite a lot as well. So there you go. Yes, and uh, um, Mark says, can the team think of any notable fixtures where the national anthem was the first (laughs) one of two anthems butchered for different reasons? Um, uh, Producer Joel said the Italian guys were a bit like an Italian pet shop boys. Nikki. Yeah, so that was um, Gigi Ressio and Clementino, who are both sort of um, figures who've been on the music scene for a long time. Delessio's, um I think, does more writing now than singing. Um, Clementino's at Rafa, both obviously not in their sort of, I guess, the prime of their youth anymore. And they both do um, judging on the Italian The Voice. Right. Recently, they did like a duet together on stage, and not just at The Voice, but they have a The Voice senior now in Italy, which is like an over 60s uh, contestant. Oh, wow. Wow. Oh, wow. That whole moment, those two singing the anthem for kickoff, just like my childhood, summers in my childhood were just like every year 
seem to be spent in like small Italian towns and villages in piazzas where you'd like have some like local musician holding court and my dad embarrassing us with his dancing. And just something about that just put me back in in that scene, like something about like they just felt like two sort of, and they're not, they're like, you know, very successful musicians who've had big careers domestically. But like, it felt to me like that was sort of like, you know, Delosio had his hand in his pocket, sort of like casually gesturing over. It felt like something from from outside the bar in Italy on a, on a summer night to me. So, so is that, what's the equivalent? Is that like, Shane Ritchie. Because I didn't see it. Is it is it Shane Ritchie? Is it is it Ricky from the Kaiser Chiefs? Is it Robbie Williams? Like what's you know? What's Boy our, George. Boy who, George who, does who, the what? voice, doesn't he? Or did do the voice? Yeah, Boy George. Boy George does the voice with Tom Jones. Um, did it? Will I am? I mean, will it? Will I am? <laughs> I'd like Will I am to do the English national anthem. <laughs> the English one was was very slow, wasn't it? But anyway, um, thanks for those. Uh, any other thoughts on this game before we uh, move on? Uh, yes, Nikki. It's just like a random one, but um, I should have said it before we talked about uh, Retegi. He's an Argentinian-born player making his debut for Italy in what's a home game at a stadium named after Diego Maradona, and he scores a goal. I just thought that's like a cool, like melding together of of those different stories. I, I was I was going to I was going to say actually um, the atmosphere in that stadium. Uh, it wasn't quite what you get for a Napoli home game, was it? And is that because the Italian national team isn't quite in the bosom of the Neapolitan heart, or the, the other way around, isn't it? Heart of the bosom. I don't know. Where's the bosom of the heart? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I would also like to give a shout out for uh, pitchside dugouts that are actually subterranean. So at the start of the game, Gareth Southgate is sitting in the dugout, and you can only see him from sort of the chest up. And the rest of them is underground. And the dugouts are quite small, so presumably peripheral staff uh, who don't cut the mustard to get a VIP dugout ticket, they're on stools adjacent to the dugout, which reminded me of, I think it was uh, what passed for the dugouts at the city ground during the Brian Clough era. Yeah, just a plastic chair, yeah. <laughs> just just a series of stools, <laughs> like bar, bar stools on on the edge of the pitch. It's hard enough to see the shape of the game when you are sat sort of in the dugout and it's at the right height. But if you're that low, like, what can you see? You'd see Jack Grealish's calves and that's it. That's all you can see in the game. Anyway, that'll do for part one. And part two, we'll look at some other internationals and do a bit of Manchester United as well. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Ireland three, Latvia two. Um, what a great win for your boys, Baz. Is Graham says, is Barry happy and content now in knowing Evan Ferguson's future is secured, locked in with his beloved Ireland? Does that mean it is secured and locked in? It was only a friendly. Well, I don't think it is because it was only a friendly. It's interesting, actually. The commentator on Channel 4 uh, at one point uh, stated that it was Declan Rice's 40th international appearance. It was not. It was his 43rd international appearance. But uh, the Channel 4 commentator, whose name I didn't get, so apologies to you, whoever you were. Steve Bauer, was it? Uh... Steve Bauer, yeah. Uh, had had conveniently wiped uh, Declan Rice's first three international appearances, which were for Ireland against Turkey, the USA, and somebody else, from history. Yeah, he'd erased them. Uh, and I mean, it's I, not like uh, it's it's uh, Barry, It's not like the English to erase anything from Irish history. So you know, no, God, no. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was a it was a decent win for Ireland. A game of not much significance, let's face it. And obviously, the big story was Callum O'Dowda scoring his first goal <laughs> for his country. Yes. Uh, so hats off to him, a diving header from a William Smallbone cross. Uh, and uh, obviously yeah, a young man named Evan Ferguson he he scored his first goal as well a, a deflected shot from five or six yards Mikey Johnson who recently declared for Ireland having I think unnailed his colours from the Scottish mass he's a, a Glasgow player on loan in uh, Portugal with Vitoria Gimeres. Uh he, he seemed to play quite well when he came on so yeah 3-2 win 
uh, young Irish side with an average age of 23. Big game against France on Monday and hopefully beat them 3-2 as well. How good were the, were the Latvian goals in that, goal, in that game, by the way? First one was outrageous. But it looked, it was a great goal. I'm not sure he could have saved it, but Quivin uh, uh, Kelleher, um, his dive was weird for that one, wasn't it? That goal would have been better if the dive had been better, if you see what I mean. Well, yeah, but this this comes back to the fact that goalkeepers, as I've said, shouldn't dive if they're not going to get it because it might come back off the bar and they could catch it. But Uldrikis, Mr. Uldrikis scored Latvia's opener. It was an absolute great goal. And the other goal as well by Stuzjins, I have not pronounced that correctly, um, was a really good hit as well. Um, so well done to Latvia for scoring two good goals. Northern Ireland won 2 nil in San Marino. Dion Charles, um, a clone of John Charles and Dion Dublin. Uh, scored both goals. Uh, they play Finland on Sunday. Uh, Finland lost 3-1 to Denmark this evening. Um, I think we're going to do Northern Ireland in some detail on Monday, I think. So uh, uh, not before time that we get a Northern Irish expert on. Uh, Ricardo said, if you were wondering if China uh, could do it on a cold Thursday night in Auckland, the answer is no, not really. It was a nil-nil draw. Next, the double header. the second game's on Sunday. Uh, Ronaldo got his world record 197th men's international appearance in Portugal's 4-0 win over Liechtenstein, scored two, making it 120 international goals. On Manchester United in the takeover, um, I don't know how carried away everyone's getting with this, with deadlines for prospective buyers and second bids and asking for more time and this investment bank called Rain, which does sound like a sort of, you know, like an evil company in Mission Impossible or or something like that, or something that Gene Hackman has to uncover in something. Anyway, I mean, they may be lovely, and you know, just in case they're listening, one of my favourite, I do all my investment banking with Rain. Uh, anyway, um, they've, they've allowed more time for their second offers, which was granted. I wonder, John, from your Manchester United prism, what you're making of all of this. It's a, it's a well, it's obviously a, a beauty contest uh, of sorts, not dissimilar to the one, and it's the same group actually. Rain that did the Chelsea takeover. Yeah, th- there was some confusion, wasn't there, over the delay because it was the soft deadlines, then there's hard deadlines, then there's the fact that uh, it, they're going to wait to put uh, bids in, and then maybe a bid has gone in. Then there's a lot of PR from saying our bid is going to be the biggest, and then. Obviously, there's the culture war between fans, uh, and that uh, I mistakenly well, I didn't mistakenly, I pointed out a detail about uh, uh, Sir Jim Ratcliffe's deal, and uh, I received a volley uh, of, of uh, abuse for saying that I was, you know, British only backing, you know, um, against the Qataris. A lot of people, a lot of Manchester United fans, uh, maybe a lot of them are online for the Qatari deal. Because they seem to think that that is the deal that frees Manchester United from the debt. And it's the debt that is the big thing that a lot of people think. Despite the fact that, actually, if you think about it, Manchester United uh, did okay and could have done better if the players had played a little bit better, even though they were in debt. So you, and, and despite the fact that Manchester United could probably run itself without having a multi-billionaire owner. Um, so you've just got this... It's all got pretty nasty uh, over who wants what. My preference is neither Sir Jim Ratcliffe nor Qatar, nor is it an investment banker. It is that um, somehow, and I don't know how this would happen, uh, is that the club is allowed to exist as, as it is, as its own business, pay off its debts and then run itself. And I think Manchester United is possibly one of the only clubs capable of doing that. Now, you may say I'm a dreamer. But I'm not the only one. Ultimately, you probably have to think about it that the minute that the Glazer family bought into Manchester United, or even the minute Manchester United became a PLC back in the 90s, that was probably the moment that the club stopped being Manchester United Community Club and then became this and uh, changed the face of football and then everything else followed with it. So that's very depressing. Sorry. Simon says, nice to buy into Sack Nagelsmann before your pod. Uh, it's a here we gayen from Fabrizio Romano. Exclusive news confirmed. Thomas Tuchel becomes the new Bayern head coach. Full agreement in place. He's already accepted the job. Um, Bayern lost 2-1 to Xabi Alonso's Bayer Leverkusen at the weekend. They're currently second, one point behind Dortmund. Still in the Champions League. I guess there were some rumours that Spurs might have been interested in Tuchel and this might have forced Bayern's hand. Uh, Jason says, how quickly will Spurs high on Nagelsmann? Um, I don't know. I mean... 
it's not a sort of Bundesliga expert panel, but I don't know who I, I don't know who I should throw this to. But I I did not expect this to happen, Barry. Uh, no, I came as a shock to me, and I'm not sure why because nothing is that shocking in football these days. And if Bayern's thought their hand was forced by Tottenham possibly being in the market for Tuchel, then. Yeah, but they're not exactly in crisis, are they? But maybe by their own high standards, they are in crisis. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. The Nagelsmann thing is, I think it, from what I understood a few years ago, it was when Nagelsmann made the breakthrough as being the great young coach to follow Klopp and Tuchel. It was always the idea that he would be Bayern's boy, and then it didn't go quite that well for him at Hoffenheim. And then after the job he did at RB Leipzig, well, it was a sort of fate accompli. But he's never quite convinced, has he? And, you know, Bayern, the the minimum requirement is that you win the Bundesliga and they're not necessarily going to win it this year. Um, There isn't this suggestion that Tuchel, who's obviously, you know, been on the market since September, since he left Chelsea, uh, that that was all, he's been a stalking horse for some time, and the suggestion is that because uh, Conte is due to be fired by Tottenham, might have been fired by Tottenham by the time anyone listens to this, who knows? Uh, that they panicked. Though why Tuchel would want to go to Tottenham, uh, that's the question I can't answer. It is bonkers. Like it's bonkers that you can be like literally perfect in the Champions League and one point off top and it's like oh not good enough it's, it's such a high bar it's like hard to imagine I totally agree like Lars Polman making that point on Twitter saying that like, they spent 25 million on Nagelsmann they replaced Lewandowski with two promoting so him go eight from eight in the Champions League against Inter, Barca and PSG this season and he's gone because they're only about 75% favourites for an 11th league title in the row anyway you know that's the fine margins snip if you're at the top of the game and you know you sort of think for Tuchel to sort of wander in and win another trophy you go not really yours, is it? Should he? He should. If he wins the title, he should be like um, Les Seely and give his uh, give his medal. Go and find Nagelsmann and give his uh, title-winning medal to Nagelsmann. The, the only the only thing I'd say is that I think we could look forward to Nagelsmann appearing in the Premier League. Those trousers on a on, can, can they do a wet, windy night in Stoke? That's the question. But he's definitely going to be. He, He's got to be in the Chelsea. Come on, that's him at Chelsea. You can see it, can't you? More than you can at Spurs. Yeah. You're right. I like the idea we say Conte might be gone. We might be saying Conte might be gone before this pod goes out for the rest of time. <laughs> These pods just keep saying on every pod and then he's just there in 10 years. Well, I was thinking this because if you, if you recall, he, he, uh, Sari was the manager of Chelsea by the time Conte left Chelsea. Remember there was that weird day where they had to change around all the training ground because Conte had been there and Sari was there and it was almost like they printed Conte a new training jumper with AC on it for the season and I don't think he ever got to wear it because LS was wearing it instead so yeah that could that could happen at Tottenham couldn't it up at Turkey Street we, we await that alright that'll do for part two part three we'll do any other business Hey, stell dir köstliche Nuggets vor. Mit goldgelber, knuspriger Panade und herrlich würziger Soße. Stell dir vor, du snackst dir ein und noch ein. Mmm, bis keine mehr übrig sind. Und mit diesem unnachahmlichen McDonalds-Geschmack im Mund stell dir vor, du hast gerade zum ersten Mal die neuen, knusprigen, pflanzlichen McPlant Nuggets von Beyond Meat gegessen. Kannst du dir das vorstellen? Dann kannst du sie jetzt probieren. McPlant Nuggets. Neu. Und nur bei McDonalds. Iss, was du likest. Bitte Zubereitungsinfos beachten. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Mesut Ozil's announced his retirement at the age of 34. Won nine trophies during his club career, including four FA Cups, uh, the La Liga title in 2012. Won 92 caps for Germany, part of the team that lifted the World Cup. Barry, you wrote about his his retirement in the Football Daily Newsletter. Jan says, was Mesut Ozil a misunderstood genius or a fragile and work-shy prima donna who wasted the final years of his career? What say you, Barry? Uh, I think you could probably argue both cases. He was an undeniably brilliant player on his day. And towards the end of his career, those days were few and far between. 
and he ended up in uh, Turkey with Fenerbahce and um, Istanbul Bezeksi here. And I, I think we all have this and possibly almost certainly unfair view of Turkey as this place where once great Premier League players go to live out their dotage in relative obscurity because none of us pay much attention to what's going on there. But, you know, as soon as he announced his retirement, there was that brilliant goal he scored against Ludogorets uh, for Arsenal in a 3-2 win, the third goal in a 3-2 win where Arsenal came from behind, which was brilliant. He won a World Cup with Germany, but his career in Germany, he ended up being scapegoated for their failure at the 2018 World Cup. It ended very sourly at Arsenal, where he was reduced to basically trolling uh, the club. He's on sitting on 350 grand a week contract. He's not in the Premier League squad. He's not in the Europa League squad. He's live-tweeting a game they're playing away at Rapid Vienna. He's offering to pay Gunnarsaurus's wages after he was laid off during the pandemic. You know, he's he's just basically taking the piss out of them. Um, and and for those of us who don't have a particular affinity to Arsenal, it was all highly amusing. But it was a bit sad, and I think his retirement statement was, you know, he didn't go full Father Ted, and and now the liars, but he. He conspicuously, you know, he, he thanked the coaches who had supported him, as in, not you, Mikel Arteta, not you, Yogi Löw. He didn't really thank anyone in the German setup. <laughs> um, and then there were controversies throughout his career. I think, was it Erdogan was the best man at his wedding, the Turkish PM or president, and he he got himself in bother with Arsenal for... Uh, tweeting that or putting on Instagram or whatever social media account it was, his statement in support of the the Uyghur Muslims and the manner in which they were being mistreated by the Chinese government. But um, I think if I had had the career Mesut Ozil had had, I'd be very proud of it. I think, like, as well, like, his time at Arsenal might not have been everything that everyone, like, first imagine like obviously when he showed up there was the craziness with sky sports it was one of those real sort of like memorable transfer um scenes wasn't it but but actually like arsenal hadn't won a trophy in nine years before he showed up and they won the fa cup i think the first year he was there so they kept winning it so it's not like he did nothing there it's not like he went there and 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 had no impact he was really bloody good for a good number of years Mm. And he, I, I, he was just as graceful. There are just some footballers that have a poise and a grace, and when it's right, I think he scored one. Was it that hat trick you mentioned? There was one goal he scored for us. I think we just sat the keeper down. There was one assist he made for Ramsey where no one else would have made it because he just, that he's just sort of on that different plane of footballers. That when he got it right, it was just a, a total joy to watch. John, I, I think of him in sort of almost like two separate parts of his career because I first saw him play at the 2010 World Cup. For Germany, um, and that game, the famous, you know, the Lampard uh, goal that wasn't, but in that game, Ozil destroyed England with his passing, and he's at that time I considered him a player, one of these players in perpetual motion. Uh, and then it, it wasn't as if he got old because he was still quite a young player, but he he suddenly slowed down his movements. It became a bit like Messi, where it's almost like him standing still is part of the movement. And I'm not sure in certain games, there was one game that I remember in particular, I was at, uh, it's the 5-1 where Liverpool beat Arsenal. Ozil standing still was possibly not what Arsenal fans wanted to see that day. Uh, and he's one of those players that, that was misunderstood and uh, in an era where statistics became ever more popular, Ozil's assist level was you know off the scale. So he was like a real favourite of... of of your, stati- your statistical times. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, a player of immense talent that achieved so much in the game, yet we were left wanting more. Um, and uh, as Barry said, some of that trolling was actually really rather amusing. So he obviously had a sense of humour. I mean, it's generous to pay Gunnosaurus his wages, but you don't imagine Gunnosaurus was on like 60 grand a week. Although you never know with the contracts, you know, 
in football. No, no, and and, and actually, um, the thing that Barry talks about the political conscience as well. Okay, it wouldn't be to everyone's taste, but there weren't many other sports people speaking out against that. And at the time, there was a big con- controversy uh, at the NBA. Um, it's very brave to do it. Some 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 might say foolhardy, uh, but. And funny enough, if when you actually think about Mikel Arteta's success as an Arsenal manager, one of his great successes was coming in and getting rid of Ozil. It worked for him to get rid of this big character. Um, and uh, I'm sure there's no love lost, but um, I'm sure Arsenal fans look back and remember the good times, but they'll also remember him standing still a few times as well. I find the standing still thing weird though, because like he was like often then found to have covered the most distance or second most distance of anyone on the team, like repeatedly. That wasn't just like a one-off. But thing. maybe he was the best at standing still and running around as well. I, I don't know. It was like <laughs> uh, Robert says um, now Ben Foster's come out of retirement. Is it too late for him to replace Fraser Forster in the England squad tonight? Appealing to your well-known hatred of the latter. Uh, thank you, Robert. Yeah, Wrexham have announced the signing of Ben Foster on a short-term deal. He's thirty-nine. Um, we all remember Barry Ben Foster's 2005 loan spell at Wrexham, 17 appearances in League One. Um, it's impossible not to love Ben Foster. So, I, like, I don't know if they have a goalkeeping crisis and that's why he's there. I, mean, I presume that's the case, but it'll be fun to see how he goes. Yeah, I, I'm a big Ben Foster fan. There, I did see someone suggest, I can't remember who on Twitter, that uh, Wrexham are sponsored by TikTok. Ben Foster has more TikTok followers than Wrexham have. There may be, you know, a slight commercial angle to this signing, and obviously it's big name. It's going to generate headlines. Uh, some people don't necessarily approve of the 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 Wrexham. What would you call it? the fairy tale, the Hollywood inspired fairy tale? There's a degree of cynicism. I think it's quite. I quite like it. Yeah, I I've no idea if there's a goalkeeping crisis there or not. So probably should have checked. Really, shouldn't we? But uh, Rock, Wrexham keeper Rob Langton was injured for six weeks uh, the other day. So uh, that perhaps uh, at the weekend. So that perhaps explains it. I mean, my favourite Ben Foster moment was was either you and I, Barry, or me and Charlie on the radio, and I was saying I I want an app for where you can see all the footballers commuting. Right, so I'm just interested to see what their commutes are to training, and you know, sort of. Winston Bogard flying in. And, you know, just nice to see. You know, I, I can't remember. A footballer was living in Cobham and driving to Middlesbrough or something every day to training or something ridiculous. It was P- Peter Crouch was living in Cobham and commuting to Stoke. So we were discussing this. We were discussing this on the radio and then Ben Foster WhatsApp me his live location so we could see we could see him driving. We could see his little dot driving up the, the M1 or whatever it was. And I was like, ah, this is the live app. This is real. We can go to Dragon's Den now. We have proof of concept. Stephen says, after Neighbours was axed and then resurrected a few months later, are you looking forward to the call in a couple of months' time asking you to return to Soccer AM, the glory years? Uh, David, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you your thoughts about the end of Soccer AM, what it means to you and its many viewers throughout the years. Uh, Neil says, a full pod dedicated to Soccer AM, the glory years, perhaps a step too far. Um, yeah, I wrote a piece in The Guardian about it, actually. And and I, it's not something that I guess I think about on a daily basis. But when the news came, Soccer AM, uh, for our non-UK viewers, to say. Saturday morning light entertainment chat show that is being axed after 30 years. Uh, and I got incredibly nostalgic, actually, because, you know, it was sort of quite a formative, it was sort of a life-changing moment for me for lots of reasons. Um, that was a ridiculously fun way to earn a living, being sort of dressed as a penguin and recreating a John Lewis advert or, or you know, just... Sort of, and I, I wrote in the piece, like, the times you'd sit back and look at the sofa and go, no other world would Carl Kennedy from <laughs> Neighbours be sitting next to Uwe Rossler and Mark Ronson. Like, like, like the, the green room was always a sort of utterly ridiculous place. And, you know, it was definitely of its time, you know, and there were parts, like specifically the soccerette part, which looking back now is pretty painful. There's like a, there is a Twitter, there's a Twitter video that does the rounds of me, like doing the soccerette part. It was of its time and yet not actually that long ago. So... But I, I don't know. It feels like a lifetime ago. But yeah, I got very nostalgic. And, and look, for the guy, I still know a few of the guys who work on that show. People have worked on that show for years and years. And it's and actually, you know, there's so much in that program that it's it is hard work to make. And you know, it's the hours that the crew put in were pretty exhausting. They'd be in until one, two in the morning on a Friday night, and be back in at six in the morning on a Saturday. I had to sort of create the energy for the show. 
And so for people who worked on it a long time, most importantly, their jobs are not safe. They might not have a job at Sky anymore. So like, I feel for them. Um, and yeah, I'm yet to be asked back for the final extravaganza. You know, I, I don't know what they'll do, but, you know, maybe a massive dance off with the entire crew. I want to ask Max, like when you like think about it, like what's what's the memory? Like what's like the, 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 like, the number one memory that comes to your mind when you think about those years doing Soccer AM? Uh, it's really hard to it's really hard to distill it into one. I mean, I think about, I actually think most about probably getting the job because it came out of nowhere and it was, it was, I'd, I was doing the breakfast on BBC London. Uh, Barry must have heard this a million times. And I got sacked and replaced by Paul Ross. And I was, first, and, I, and I like, and I didn't really have, I was sort of work, I had a staff job at the BBC and I was like, being, you know, reading the news and reporting and stuff. And I was like, okay, well, I, I want to present. And so I made a show reel and I sent it to everyone. And no one replied except the Travel Channel, who said I was boring. <laughs> and they said I wasn't edgy. They said I wasn't edgy enough, which is, I mean, really quite accurate, actually. And uh, and Sky Sports rang me up and said, "Do you want to come and have a chat?" And I went, "Sure." And I just really didn't think anything of it. You know, I could do that temp in bowling or whatever, just something to pay the rent. And I chatted to these two guys who turned out to be the guys Vic Wakeling and Andy Melvin, who grew Sky from like nothing into what it was then, or what it is now. And we talked about Cambridge United for an hour talks about Soccer AM and I'd been a fan of the week in like the late 90s, but I still didn't think anything of it. And like two months later, they called me in. They said, look, can you come in for a chat? And I actually had a Blue Peter audition the next day. No, no, that day. And I was like, well, this is ridiculous, right? Because I, I like, I was already graying, right? But I was like, okay, I've got a Blue Peter. I said, I've got a Blue Peter audition. Can I come in in the morning? And they were like, yeah, all right. So they must've thought, oh man, this guy's in demand. I really wasn't at all. So I went in and sat down opposite the head of Sky Sports and he just went, I'd like to talk about Soccer AM. And he went, yeah, would you like to do it? And I was like, I was sort of waiting for an audition or a screen test or something. There was nothing. And I'd never done a TV show in my life, right? I'd done loads of radio. I'd done a bit of TV, like pre-recorded stuff. And then he started talking to me about uh, Hull City beating Bristol City in the playoffs, that Dean Windass volley. And I hadn't seen the game. And I was like sitting there going, I've just got to get out of this room. I've just got to get out before he thinks he's made a terrible mistake. And then he just went, oh, I was, he was like, you know, what other work are you going to do? And he said, oh, I said, I'll just do this. So, you know, this year, so you give me next year. Went, oh, you can have a two-year contract. It was like a Heineken advert. You know, I was just like, what this? Champagne, caviar, that kind of thing. And then I went to the Blue Peter audition, which was ridiculous, right? Because it was just like lots of 22-year-olds. I was like 28, 29. And they were all like high on Sunny Delight. <laughs> and we were learning the history of Lego. And they were like bouncing around this TV center. And I was thinking, I don't really want to be here. I've already got, I've sort of got the job of my dreams. And then I got offered the Blue Peter job as well because I was just so relaxed about everything and I sort of turned them down. Imagine if I'd taken Blue Peter, where would I be now? Where would Jake Humphrey be? That's the question. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, did that, that's high, high performance with Max Rushton. <laughs> Can you imagine? And the Guardian Football Weekly be, with Jake Humphrey. Be. I mean, come yeah. on. But like, it was so much fun. You know, like it was, like, it was hard work for the, the team and stuff. But, you know, Mr. T was on the show, like... It was Mr. T. I was sitting there going, this is ridiculous. Um, uh, so, yeah, like, I'm not surprised. It's going. I think social media has killed it as well. Like when we were doing it, those funny clips from League One or League Two or Scotland or whatever, that was the first time you'd see them. But now you've seen them before the games ended. So, um, But like, I wish I wish everyone well on it. Yes, John? Whenever I see it now, it just appears to be Jimmy Bullard doing training exercises and shouting and roaring. and It's actually quite, I just find it quite watchable. I mean, I suppose the glut, I, I did watch it, but it was always appears to be like a, a haircut band, you know, uh, in, uh, landfill indie. You've probably spoken to all of these people. I have. Do you know what? Like I said, my biggest fear uh, is being put in a room with all the indie bands I've interviewed, and I'm not allowed to leave until I've put them all together. <laughs> so I have to get like the bassist from editors with the lead singer of the Cribs <laughs> or whatever. Like I, I've got like, we took um, Polaroid photos after every show. And I've got like these albums. I think we moved to iPhone eventually, but like, I've got like a few years of Polaroid photos and I've got them rest on my phone. I literally, I'm looking at going, well, I know that's Justin Morehouse. Or I know that's Jason Manford. And I know that's Brett Ormrod, but I just cannot tell you. Every time I look at the band going, I do not have a clue. I don't know who any of them are, you know? That's Peter Hook. That's Noel Gallagher. That's Dean Windass. When Peter Hook was on, like he said, fuck so many times, they introduced a delay onto the show. Like a 10 second delay <laughs> and a few months later, and I, I wrote this in the piece and I, quite often people swore because it was that relaxed environment. People didn't think they were on television, but like, it was very much like, ah, oh, and that was a, what a fucking joke that was or something like that. But we were doing a show with David Ginola and Johnny Vaughan. And so Johnny Vaughan is actually chaos to interview, right? It's just like, un, you just can't produce it. Like just the show is going to go in whatever way he wants it to, but he's obviously very entertaining. And so he was teasing 
David Ginler about his autobiography, which is called Moi. And it has a picture of the front page is David Ginola in some Speedos on a speedboat. I mean, of course it is. But Ginola is such a legend and such a great guy. But they were started having this play fight. They stood up and started pushing each other. And we were like, oh, this is funny. Yeah, this is funny. We we're sitting back. And then David Ginola just goes, just yells, you fuck my wife. You fuck my wife. <laughs> right? And like, normally you're really on it with swearing on the radio or TV. There's something in you that makes you go, right, I'm just... Whatever you're listening to, you're just so focused and you just shut it down, apologize, whatever. I remember sitting there going, well, that can't. <laughs> like in a split second, you're just going, that cannot. Like, like he's been on TV loads. He can't. He must know you can't do that. And then anyway, it, it was like it was silence. So people didn't hear and we apologize and whatever. And then we just said at the break, what were you doing? And he went, oh, I was just quoting Scarface. I think it was Raging Bull. I forget. The film was Raging Bull. I can't remember what he said. And you're like, well, that... It's not really like you can't just, you can't just recreate movies, X-rated movies on Saturday morning telly. Oh yeah, life changing for me. I wouldn't have the summers off. I wouldn't have met my wife. I wouldn't be in Australia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Anyway, um, we'll finish on this. Uh, you'll remember Barry um, that I asked for certain voice notes from people, and not everyone got to us, got through to us. Let me play you a final fiftieth birthday message uh, for you now. <laughs> hey Barry, it's uh, Chris O'Dowd here I'm so sorry I missed your 50th But I'm working on a film at the moment um, With a couple of good friends I'm here with the great Captain Picard uh, Hello Barry, I understand you have turned 50 So you have all my condolences And uh, make it so Oh, And the guy, oh, he's just warming up over here He's going to do a scene uh, Matt! Hey, hey there, oh, what's this your buddy? Uh, hey uh, Barry, this is Matthew McConaughey Just saying... Uh, Relax, you're 50. It's all downhill from here, mate. So that's it, Barry. Best wishes. Hope it's not your last. <laughs> Is that really Matthew McConaughey? <laughs> well, well, I don't know. Like, first of all, Chris, Chris oh, <laughs> listens to the pod. I didn't know that. So he, he sent me a message going, I'm really sorry. I, I missed the message. He doesn't check his Instagram very often. And so then I was, I was pushing uh, Ian Rushton around the streets of Melbourne at like, six in the morning the other day and this popped in and I was like I can't work out if either Chris O'Dan is a brilliant impressionist if he's standing next to Alistair McGowan or Bobby Davro or he's actually in a room as you'd hope with Patrick Stewart and Matthew McConaughey we don't know and whichever way it doesn't matter thank you Chris yes thank you Chris and Matthew and Patrick yeah all of you and that'll do for today's pod um, thanks so much Nikki. Thanks. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Barry. Thank you. For the weekly, it's produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. This is The Guardian. <laughs> 